This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, Carol, one of the old journalistic chestnuts is when you're in a new town, you talk to the cab drivers and you ask them what's going on. And you and I were in Charlotte not too long ago. Yes. And, you know, I inevitably want to talk sports. I always love to talk to the cab drivers. And, you know, we were there for the NBA All-Star game, but I'm from the South. I know that people care a little bit about football teams. The Carolina Panthers haven't been doing so well lately. You had no idea where I was going I with this, I kind of knew you? it would end up in sports, but <laughs> I'm good with it. So the Carolina Panthers, they are owned by a guy named David Tepper. He's made a lot of money as a hedge fund manager, and now he's going to spend more time with that football team because he's getting out of the hedge fund business. Sri Natarajan, they, he and Sajal Kashan, they had the scoop uh, here on the Bloomberg. It is the most read story with a bullet. Sri joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. All right, so what's going on here with Mr. David Tepper? Hanging it up. Let's start off by saying when you say he made a lot of money, to be clear, that's an understatement. He's (laughs) worth $11 billion. So that's a lot of money. Uh, Enough to buy a a football team for a record amount, $2.3 billion, and not think that too much about it. And a few more if he wants. Right. Uh, Look, the basic fact of the matter is uh, David Tepper is one of the legends of the investing world. He has had this hedge fund for over 25 years, uh, blockbuster returns throughout. And uh, he now is thinking about converting it into a family office, returning investor capital and just manage his own money. For one, uh, it probably isn't that much fun anymore. It is it is a bit of a, it's something that wears you down if you've made a lot of money and still have to answer to nagging investors every quarter. But and these guys live for this. They do, but when you have an interesting side hobby like running the Carolina Panthers, you'd much rather worry about Cam Newton's shoulder than returns month on month on so month. So really it's just like, hey guys, I just want to hang out with the team. I'm done with you. Yes, and he's not the first one to do this. We yeah. have we have seen a growing trend of some big ticket names deciding to call it quits. You had uh, George Soros a few few years ago, and this might have been back in 2011 when he said he's returning investor capital and just managing his family office money. Um, you had Leon Cooperman last year. John Paulson is said to be considering it. Uh, so it makes sense. And also remember the reality of the hedge fund world is change. It's not like wealthy investors now are going to hedge funds as the go-to place to park their money as they used to maybe a decade, decade and a half ago. Now you have index funds. It's hard to outperform the markets and you have to do a lot more to stand out. Uh, so instead of getting into that headache, you might you as well have to pursue work something harder? you can. Much harder. Okay. <laughs> well, and it's an interesting point too, and I'm glad you rattled off those names in part because this isn't, we're not talking about people where it's like, guys you've never heard of they think it's sort of hard and then they get out of the business these are literally the legends of the business and as you say people who've been doing it for decades this business and you know it well Sri, has fundamentally changed, changed. Yeah. and institutional investors have a different view of hedge funds they are not quite as in love with them as they once were in part because 
the returns just aren't there in all yeah, cases. R- returns haven't been great. Then you have the constant pressure on fees. Uh, so what do you play for? Because the 2 and 20 has been sort of the holy grail of H1 that people have been chipping away at. Right. So when that doesn't exist anymore, uh, is, it really, is it really worth the time and effort is it's, probably a question. It's just that private equity is now the new hedge funds. Possibly. I mean, no, that's, I mean, the environment has changed, yeah. right, dramatically. I mean, there's a great story in the magazine this week about, you know, how tough it is to beat the market and even sophisticated investors, you know, as soon as you come up with a smart algorithm, you know, that might just beat on, you know, a, a fraction of, a, you know, a gain or loss in the marketplace, there's somebody there to do the same thing. But just, but just to be very clear, it's not like any public company CEO will not have nightmares of David Tepper anymore. He will still be in the investment. <laughs> world, he will still be managing a lot of money. Right. It's just that it's going to be his money. He's not going to be answerable money? to everyone else. He's worth $11 billion. Uh, so if he's managing a good chunk of it in a hedge fund platform, that's still a pretty big hedge fund by itself. Right. And just to get back to sports for a second, I mean, let's also remember that this is another you know mega trend that we've seen across mm-hmm. all sports leagues. If you look across the ownership of football, pro football, pro basketball, a uh, little less so hockey, certainly Major League Soccer, baseball, and many others. It is rife with hedge fund and private equity managers, and they are bringing a lot of these skills to, to managing it. You know, we could rattle off a, a bunch of names. I mean, uh, you know, Mark Lazary, Wes Edens, and Jamie Dynan. Yeah. You know, they're behind the Milwaukee Bucks. They've been doing all right. Uh, I mean, it's notable, too, that, and as you say, he's going to be managing his own money, but he's also sort of taking this attitude when he bought the Carolina Panthers, and this was something that I was talking to the cab driver back to the beginning about, is when he showed up in uh, Charlotte, he said, the two most important things to me are winning and, secondly, winning. Like it, This guy is, is going to... He's going to pay a lot of attention to Cam Newton's shoulder. To be fair, and I know Jason's not going to like this, but uh, my understanding of American football isn't great, but all I know is that the Carolina Panthers are no New England Patriots, right? That is true. They had a terrible oh, season last year. Wow, Shree. I'm no Carolina Panthers That was like fan. worth 10 points. Jason but- Kelly, zero. <laughs> oh, my God. Hey. All right. Welcome to my world, Shree. I mean, I think... And Shri, Paul Brennan. Shree just did that to get invited back one. by our producer, yes. Paul Brennan, onto the show. You know, Did Tepper talk to you guys? Nope, he's not talking to us yet. Okay, I know you're working on it. He's going to keep after it. (laughs) Sri Natarajan, Bloomberg News finance reporter. Great, great scoop. It's the most read story on the Bloomberg terminal right now. David Tepper, returning outside money, going to manage his own business, going to pay attention to that football team. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. But this psychiatrist, it would turn out, wasn't like other psychiatrists. He cut me off from everybody, so... The only person I could turn to was Dr. Ike. And from the moment Marty started seeing him, he began to change. We didn't see him. I mean, he lived around the corner. And, like, suddenly we didn't go there anymore. Like, he wasn't coming over anymore. It's as if somebody died. It was obvious. It was obvious that Ike had the power and Marty followed the rules. If Marty Markowitz had known what he was walking into when he first visited that office, he probably would have walked right out the door and never come back all right if that doesn't want to make you plug in and listen i I don't know what does one of the voices you heard the main voice you heard there joe nocera he is here with us he's a bloomberg opinion columnist longtime journalist but joe i gotta tell you the shrink next door it's like nothing you've ever done fair to say very fair to say (laughs) but i've also been sitting on this story not sitting on it i've been thinking about this story since literally 2010 
Wow. Because it really did start with me moving into a house in the Hamptons, little house in the Hamptons, and believing that the person next door was a fancy, important New York psychiatrist, and the little guy in the green was his caretaker. And then it turned out the following year, when the shrink had disappeared, that the little guy had actually owned the house all those years and was the shrink's patient. I can, so and, and the minute the minute you hear that, it's like I want to I want to know, I know right. the rest. I want to know more. Turned upside down, right? Yeah. Like, how did this happen? Right, and well, that, that's what got me started. And, and that's what we were talking about this before we came on air. And you and I have spent a little bit of time uh, talking about this before. You hear those two sentences and you think I'm in, and then it gets even crazier. It, like it, it just goes from there. Yeah. So how do you go about telling a story like this? Because not everybody's cooperating, and it's highly controversial. Oh, in and a by lot the way, ways. Netflix is calling. <laughs> uh, from from your from your mouth. <laughs> no, I mean to totally. Ted Sarandis, Sarandis's ears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. Um, first of all, Marty and his sister Phyllis badly wanted this story told. Yeah, they felt like they had had no recourse with the courts. Not that they sued, but they thought about it. And they had gotten no, no help from the American Psychiatric Association or from the New York Department of Health, where they filed complaints. Nothing had happened. So they wanted this story told. And not only were they cooperative themselves, but Marty, because of the way Ike acted, Marty knew at least 20 other patients. Yeah. And he led us to other people. And he's such a pack rat that he has every single piece of paper about him and Ike going back 30 years. So the documentation was astounding, including co-signing Swiss bank accounts and sending out his uh, having having Marty sign his house over to 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 the psychiatrist's wife in his will and things that just blow your mind. So when you started looking into it, I mean, did everything just kind of start coming unraveled and just revealing itself? To you? No. Um, I mean, the first thing, I mean, believe it or not, back in 2012, uh, the psychiatrist, Ike, gave me an interview. Hmm. Um, I think he thought he could talk me out of this story. Yeah. And he gave me a two-hour interview, and he basically said, look, uh, Marty, the patient, is a very troubled soul, and he's on a vendetta. And you really shouldn't believe everything he's, anything he says. Uh, so you are a little confused at that point. Right. Um, but you keep digging. And what you do is you find other patients. I found other patients who had the same fact pattern. Right. Where he did the same thing. It's like an odd Ponzi scheme of sorts. It's a psychological Ponzi, Ponzi scheme. scheme. Yes. Exactly. And, um, and that gave me some confidence. And then the fact that Marty had so many documents. I mean, even, even though the psychiatrist says, well, Marty begged me to co-sign the Swiss bank account. It's like, well. So what? I mean, what psychiatrist says yes to that? There's rules, right? Right. When the way, the way it's supposed to happen is what you're supposed to do in that circumstance. If you're the psychiatrist, you're supposed to say, well, let's talk about your desire to do that. Let's, let's see where that leads. Right. Instead of saying, yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'll co-sign it. Right. Well, as usual, we could talk to you all afternoon. But the good news is, is that everyone listening out there, go to your favorite podcast app, whatever you use, download The Shrink Next Door, set aside some time this long weekend because you're going to be completely engrossed. This is not one of those podcasts, Carol, that you can like turn it on. You're doing some other stuff or checking email. I was almost late to the show because I was listening. You've got to be all in. <laughs> and don't forget- 
Much of it takes place in the Hamptons. So if you're driving to the Hamptons tomorrow (laughs) or Saturday morning. It's the perfect thing to tune in. Joe knows Sarah, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. His podcast, The Shrink Next Door, talk about number one with the bullet. It is one of the most downloaded already. It just debuted uh, this week. New episodes coming out. Check it out. You will not regret it. This story is among our most read on the Bloomberg today, how Amazon is working on a device that can read human emotions. Matt Day is technology reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from our Seattle There's some emotion going on outside our (laughs) studio because people just realized who Charlie Pellet is. They're like, oh my God, it's the voice of the subway. Anyway. (laughs) Matt Day, what am I thinking? (laughs) Well, we love to ask Amazon that, I think. (laughs) What are they doing? So they are developing what looks like a, a two things. One is a, is a wearable uh, wristband um, of, of some sort that has microphones. It's, it's presumably some sort of health and wellness fitness tracker. That's a, that's a very common thing. The more uncommon thing is, is the software they're building behind the scenes that, uh, that purports to be able to analyze human emotions so that you know, whatever that microphone picks up from, uh, from its wear, hypothetically, it's going to be able to uh, tell you, you know, what, uh, what that wear is feeling. My husband can't wait. But I mean, I was even thinking about Jason's like, I don't even know where you're going to go on a given like any second, right? Yeah. Like, how is that possible? We were just talking about how it's difficult for even in the magazine this week about how computers have a deaf time just figuring out where the market's going to go next. The brain, not everybody's is this way, but it's complicated. <laughs> Some people are very simple minded. Is that what you're saying? Why are you looking at me when you say that? Stop looking at me. No, no, no. But you know what I'm saying? Like, how is this even possible? There's not a direct causality between things always. No, absolutely right. And, uh, you know, it, it's important to argue that this is, this is very cutting edge or, or mind folks anyway. But I think what, what Amazon thinks they can do, or at least what they're trying to do, is, is they've amassed just a, just a giant trove of human speech data. You know, stuff that people have said to their Alexas, stuff that they have, you know, gone out and bought or scraped from the Internet. And they think that in this, in this giant pile of human speech, um, that if they sort of correctly chart, you know, how, what was the, what was the pitch like? Did you sound yeah. aggressive or docile? That if they run that through sort of their data processing, they can start to make educated guesses on, you know what that um, what that sound represents in terms of a human emotion. We've seen that in medicine, right? Yeah. There's been stories about that where it can pick up on things and figure out how ill somebody is or what kind of illness potentially they have. Right, and, and it's a great point. The voice piece is one, and and we've actually done some work on uh, around that with this show and, and talking about how voice really takes data to the next level in many ways. And, and you're so right to point out, Matt, that, I mean, this is really one of the advantages that Amazon has and, and the other uh, in-home devices have. How worried should we be about this? Because you and your team have done some great reporting about, you know, people listening and it's supposed to be, you know, anonymous, but they can hear the things that I say, even if I'm not speaking directly to my Amazon Echo. And, you know, people worry about privacy to to a large extent right now. Isn't there an element of this where people go, oh, that's cool. Wait, what? Oh, there certainly is, and I think there's a is a big creeped out uh, reaction to to our story today online. Anyway, but I think m- more than anything, you know, people should be you know aware of this, right? That yeah. When you when you type something into Gmail, when you put something on Google Calendar, when you speak to your Alexa, you know, that's that's data that you're essentially offering up to these companies, and you know, who knows what they're going to do with it? What R and D projects down the line might fit with their terms of service? And you know, in Amazon's case, that appears to be analyzing you know some portion of of data we don't know if it's customer data or not but using uh, you know that big pile of stuff they've accumulated to uh you know do this r&d project what kind of responses are you getting from your story 
it's it's kind of all over the map. I mean, I think this this to the to the industry is not a huge secret that folks are trying to do work like this, right? There's there's um, almost a, a series of party trick like applications that you know Microsoft and Google and others have developed that you know you show them a picture and the picture can uh, can tell or a software can tell you based on that picture how you're feeling, right? That kind of that kind of stuff. And so this is definitely um, a, a work that a lot of companies are trying to do. I think what Amazon's doing here is is uh, a little bit moonshotty in the way that they're characterizing it internally that, you know, hey, we can, you know, help you make better decisions about your life based on our analysis of your emotions seems sort of a, a next level application they're looking for here. And so, Matt, help us understand this in the context, and you've done a little bit of this already, but take it even further in terms of Amazon's ambition. You know, what do they want to do for us, to us, with us? You know, we're starting to get this sense of big tech that, you know, it really is an all-encompassing strategy that they have. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, and Amazon is is pretty tight-lipped about its ambitions, but they have not been with Alexa. They've said point blank, we want this voice software to be everywhere. We want it to be the most sort of useful version of uh, a voice interaction that anybody has with with any sort of artificial intelligence. And so this represents for them, you know, both a, a next generation way to pitch that to customers. Hey, you know, nobody else has this kind of you know motion functionality. And then, you know, secondly, they uh, they're really trying to um, make amends for not owning a smartphone. Matt, uh, you know what I think about? I think. Oh, about- that's interesting. Did what? you hear that right at the end? Make amends for not having a smartphone. smartphone. That's such well, an interesting point. I also think about like an operating platform, whether it was Microsoft or whomever, you know, Google with search. You know, mm-hmm. I just think about the opportunity that if you become in many ways the platform for voice, think about the applications personally or at work or going to a store or what have you. I mean, it's a huge universe. Oh, that's absolutely the case that, you know, all the, all the tech giants working on voice think that they're, right. they're in that race, right? They're racing to build sort of the windows of, of ambient computing, right? The, the voice operating system, if you will. Yeah, that's absolutely something on their minds. And so, Matt, do you think or do you get a sense that regulators will perk up at something like this, especially at a time as we've been talking about where privacy is a little bit more front of mind when it comes to people's data? Because ultimately, this is data. It is, yeah. And I think folks will certainly keep zooming in on, you know, what the companies do disclose about what they're doing with your data. Um, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see an end to, to questions about how the companies are, are making use of voice data, those that collect it. Um, and you saw a bit of that um, after after our reporting on the Alexa sort of quality assurance right. program where the humans were reviewing it. You know, some, some folks in Europe perked up their ears about that. So yeah, th- those conversations certainly are not going to go away. Great stuff. Matt Day is a tech reporter for Bloomberg. He joined us on the phone from our Seattle bureau. The story, Amazon working on a device that can read human emotions while maybe appealing to someone like me with my partner next to me. What am uh, I thinking? What are you thinking? Oh, that you wish. Oh, that I wish. <laughs> or maybe Not so I much. just don't want to know. Well, you know what's interesting? I was thinking about our conversation, just to tease. Um, you certainly heard from uh, Cisco Systems Chief Executive Officer Chuck Robbins yesterday, and there's more in our podcast, our Bloomberg uh, Business Week Talks podcast. But it's interesting. He has talked to Bloomberg before, and I think on uh, you know at, at events, and he has talked about how tech giants kind of have to be aware that they're going to run into more policy issues on things like security, privacy, cross-border data flows. And I think it plays into that as they become more pervasive, more invasive when it comes and voice. Just think about what it can do, the potential. They will probably also be under a lot more scrutiny when it comes to the regulatory environment. Well, it also plays 
very well into all the discussions we're having about 5G because Mm -hmm. in terms of the data, in terms of our ability to assess that artificial intelligence, all of that, it all becomes much more uh, easily attainable when you have that kind of bandwidth out there. Great song. Well done, Paul Brennan, our producer. Uh, Some may call him America's top wealth detective. He is finding all of that wealth that's been hidden, uh, and he's finding out where the wealthy are exactly keeping their money. His work, though, may prove to be critical to breaking the trends that have created the wealth disparity in the U.S. today. This is the cover story of Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week. Ben Steverman wrote it uh, about Gabriel Zuckman. Ben is personal finance reporter, uh, editor, I should say, right? Editor and reporter, I guess. I'll yeah. take it all, right? Jack of all trades. At Bloomberg <laughs> News. He's with us along with our Joel Weber, who's Bloomberg Business Week editor, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Fabulous story. It had to be a cover story, right, Joel? Uh, from the first, the first draft was pretty good, so we said, okay, let's like, <laughs> yeah. That's what happens uh, when he's yeah. an editor and a reporter. <laughs> yeah, he, he's a reporter on this one. Um, but yeah, he did, a, he did a great job. And look, like this was a, look, income inequality, wealth inequality, all of that has become zeitgeist. And one of the things that we often look for in, in story pitches is a, a sense of like a, a reporter being able to open a curtain a little bit and bring us behind the scenes of something. And so Ben was able to actually identify a person that we actually didn't even know about, who's basically this Thomas Piketty protege, uh, Gabriel Zuckman, that became the the real the really the backbone of this story, and he's the foremost researcher into wealth inequality, and he's really a, a wealth detective is what we're calling him because he's been so good at sleuthing data that people heretofore had not even known how to get at, and that data has really changed the public's conversation. All right, so we should mention that we are awaiting comments from the president down in Washington. He's going to be addressing a group in the Roosevelt Room. But in the meantime, let's get to Ben Steverman. So how did you find this guy? So he's he's been quoted a lot um, here and there. Um, he, you know, Bernie Sanders' 2016 stump speech was mm-hmm. based on statistics that were created by Zuckman and by his collaborator at Berkeley, uh, Emmanuel Saez. So he's been around, um, but I, I think uh, he has really – he's really kind of pioneered a new way of – really looking at wealth, looking at not just wealth inequality, but offshore tax shelters, where he found $7.6 trillion hidden overseas. And now he's, his new target is corporate profit shifting. So corporation, multinational corporations avoiding their tax bill by moving profits to Bermuda or Ireland or places like that. But it's an important distinction, right? As we try to figure out, we constantly talk about politicians are often, especially the Democrats, are talking a lot about these wealth inequalities or income inequalities. You do make this distinction, or he does, between wealth and income. But it's important to kind of figure out what's going on to figure out then how we can maybe fix it and reduce that gap, right? Right. We had a pretty good sense of income because people report their taxes every year. Right. But we really don't – we really didn't have a good sense of how much wealth was out there, especially in the United States, um, which – where this is the wealthiest country in the world, and we really didn't have a sense of, like, how rich are the rich. And um, what he did was he created this system where you basically take tax data and you turn it into wealth data and you use he, – he's really good at finding new data sources. So he doesn't just use tax data, but he uses macro economic data and estate tax data and all sorts of different things and he pulls it together he's a little like Piketty um, his protege in that way Um, but in fact you know Thomas Piketty his bestseller like a a lot of that is based on work that Zuckman did when he was Mm -hmm. his grad student 
And Ben, when you looked at it, the, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was like this little anecdote that we got of this scene that he got uh, the he and his colleague got to go into uh, the IRS. Yeah. Right. So, so what was that scene like when you interviewed him? How, what, what did you learn from that? So he uh, he, he basically. He wasn't allowed to go in the IRS because he's actually still a French citizen, but his collaborator is an American citizen. I love that. IRS is like, no foreigner. (laughs) Exactly. The IRS – No foreigners looking at our money data. (laughs) The IRS has actually opened its doors to researchers, and we now now have a much better sense of inequality because of the IRS, and they're really able to do micro data down to like neighborhood level. Uh, Other economists have done. But but Zuckerman was able to to go in there – well, to get data out of there uh, with his collaborator, and um, really show this surge in wealth inequality from 1980 to now. Basically, if you look at that, and they're really able to guesstimate really that top 0.1%, which is that little narrow slice, and see how wealthy they are. And and it's really gone from 7% in 1980 to 20% now. There's a great chart in the magazine, and we, we incorporated it into our weekend Bloomberg Business Week weekend TV show that you can really just see in terms of that top 1%, the really wealthy, how much wealth that they have. One thing, though, that really stood out for me in your story is you write about wealth being self-reinforcing. This is a key point, right? Once you have wealth, you want to hold on to it. And so you're going to use that money to support politicians and policies that help you maintain it. The argument for lower taxes on the wealthy was this will incentivize investment. This will make our economy more dynamic. What Zuckman and some other left-leaning economists are saying is, well, actually, what if it's the opposite? What if letting the wealthy get really wealthy, what if that actually slows down the economy, makes it less dynamic because the wealthy will just hire lobbyists, buy up competitors, um, you know, um, you know, tilt, the, tilt, the, tilt things in their favor uh, in a way that, that makes the economy less dynamic? And so, Go ahead, Joel. That, that tax policy prescriptions that he's sort of been willing to actually – to champion, frankly, yeah. a it distinguishes them and sort of like where where economists are willing to go a little bit. But because he's being prescriptive with it, we're going to see, I think, more and more politicians, particularly on the Democratic side, champion what he's talking about. Well, I'm glad you said it because that's exactly where I was going, which is the timing, both of this story and of his of Gabriel Zuckman's increased activism. It can't be an accident, right? I mean, in the sense that he's getting a lot more. Uh, getting a lot more oxygen for these ideas. You mentioned Bernie Sanders, but when we think about Bernie Sanders, we think about Elizabeth Warren. We think about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know, here in the New York area, these are ideas that are catching some attention right now. Yeah, and, and people point out, oh, well, this is these are ideas are too radical or disruptive, and and that's actually a very good argument for against, say, a wealth tax, which he helped uh, Elizabeth Warren. He and Sayas helped Elizabeth Warren develop her proposal on the wealth tax. People say, well, it'll never work. Well, he's thirty two years old. Um, he has time to to work on this problem, and he, and he he thinks we can solve some of the problems that with implementing that over time. And you point out in your story that after World War II, government spending was high, income tax rates exceeded, often exceeded 90%. The U.S. economy boomed without producing extreme stratification or crash as severe as 0708, right? So people who push back against uh, higher taxes on the wealthy, I'm not saying, you know, apples to apples, but it is something to think about. Yeah. I mean, the argument against it, you know, we will would a high wealth tax, would it um, hurt? 
creative entrepreneurs, somebody like Jeff Bezos, would it prevent prevent them from uh, running the companies that they run because they'd be losing their they would have to sell their company to to pay these taxes? Um, that's that's an argument against it, but he, they're saying, well, we need to just control this this growth of extreme wealth at the very at the very margins. Uh, and you know, it's interesting as we were thinking about ways to illustrate this story. You know, we make the distinction between wealth and income, mm-hmm. uh, but we shouldn't forget. Income inequality is really something, and I learned something today as we were taping our show. Carol's looking at me, and she knows this is where I'm going. Go. The Gini coefficient. (laughs) I didn't really understand exactly what it was, but you as an economist, you understand. Well, it's income distribution. Zero means everything's equal, right? But that's not where we are. We're not even close to that point. We're much, much above that, and it just speaks to the disparities that are out there. Right, so it goes from zero to one, and we went from 0.38 back in the 70s to 0.48 now. And so mathematically, I mean, that is – an well, amazing and, and increase. It speaks to the political impl- implications for yes. all of this, right? And that's really, I think, the, his main point is that from his background, the demagogue manifestation that can use this to really champion um, uh, policies that might not be for the best of society. So he's, he's a particularly aware of that, and it's why he's being as prescriptive as he is with the tax policy ideas. Shameless plug because of another story that's in the magazine, but it just talks about how the Democratic politicians who champion these inequalities you know, ideas and looking for policies to improve it, yet are finding their way to Wall Street, <laughs> which they've often pointed fingers at when it comes to raising money. Absolutely. Uh, and, but that's why I think also you know, everyone, everyone who's talking about this, the reason we did this story was because this is the guy who found the data, right? And yeah. it's all rooted in his data. And the moment that you realize that and the fact that he's going to continue to sleuth this stuff, it makes you go, wow, this is a great story. All right, gentlemen. Hence why it gets a cover. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, and it's a great cover. It's a really nice-looking cover as well, and a story worth reading. Curl up with it over the long weekend. It's head to worth, the beach. Head to the beach. Crack this open. One of those great coolers on that the are the often pursuits. Listen, we got it all worked out. Drink. On the way there, you listen to Jono Sarah's podcast. You get to the beach. You've and, got Bloomberg wait, wait, Business Week. And our podcast. And our podcast, right. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, That's Joe. true. That's true. Just but saying. Anyway, it's all very, very super compelling. Uh, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Thank you so much. And Ben Steverman, congrats on this cover great story. Story. Wealth detective hunting hidden money finds secrets of the rich. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's check the markets. It is time to talk with JJ Kinahan. He's chief market strategist at TD Ameritrade. One point three trillion in assets under management. Um, JJ, just your take on the markets here. Well, obviously today wasn't a great day by any stretch of the imagination. You had besides the tariff stuff, the news out of Brexit. Uh, I do think for the bullish people who are listening today, the encouraging news to me is we held 2,800. We went down near this level we saw in late March. Uh, We saw again two weeks ago. We held both those times and actually rallied from there. So if you're bullish, maybe you have that hope. To be quite honest with you, I think tariffs are holding us in a range. Nobody wants to sell too much for the uh, old FOMO if you're missing out, if it does get settled. But I think people are having a tough time buying just in case it gets settled in a bad way. And so what's the next catalyst here, JJ? What are you looking for to provide some level of certainty? How much of a deal do you need? Or is it just some deal, some amount of parameter or guardrail to to give you some comfort? 
I think it's exactly that. We need some deal. The market loves certainty and hates uncertainty. I think the problem we're, we're having is that this deal is taking longer than anyone anticipated, and I think it may continue to take much longer than people anticipated. Uh, so, you know, th- th- that uh, keeps people a little bit from committing one way or the other too heavily. And the other thing, the, the thing that makes me nervous is if we continue in this kick-the-can mode is sort of tariff exhaustion, if you will. At yeah. some point, people are just going to get tired and say, you know what, I'm going to sell some of my stocks, go into fixed income, and I can make a decision once once there is some settlement. And I think that's the one thing about this that does make me a little bit nervous if I look two months out and we're still in the same situation. Well, and JJ, I would love to ask you about some of the retailers because they have been talking about tariffs a lot uh, and how it's going to play through to their business, latest of which, uh, you know, Best Buy coming out. And it feels like, and keep me honest here, that, you know, that stock down almost 5% right now, 4.76%, excuse me, uh, that's trade concerns, right? Absolutely, it's trade concerns. You see, you saw some of it from Kohl's also. Right. Um, uh, you know, a little bit from Walmart, even though they had very good earnings. That was a mention in there. So I, I, I think that that does become a little bit of a concern. And what happens is sort of of a mindset also. Does it affect the consumer? You know, we've had an amazing run by the consumer. If people start to get more unsure about everything, does it also make the consumer just step back a second and say, well, hold on, let's see where everything else settles? I, I guess the one good thing right now is, you right. know, uh, good and bad is, rates are such, such a low level, that may be able to keep the housing market going. And if you Got have it. housing and employment, that could be great. Great. JJ Kinahan, thank you so much. Have a good holiday. Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade. $1.3 trillion in assets under management on the phone from Chicago. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.